Chapter 5 The Darkest Hour Part 1 If anything had been needed to give an impetus to Jack McMurdo's popularity among his fellows, it would have been his arrest and acquittal. That a man on the very night of joining the lodge should have done something which brought him before the magistrate was a new record in the annals of the society. Already he had earned the reputation of a good boon companion, a cheery reveler, and withal a man of high temper, who had not taken insult even from the all-powerful boss himself. But in addition to this, he impressed his comrades with the idea that among them all there is not one whose brain was so ready to devise a bloodthirsty scheme, or whose hand would be more capable of carrying it out. "'He'll be the boy for the clean job,' said the oldsters to one another, and waited their time until they could set him to his work. McGinty had instruments enough already, but he recognized that this was a supremely able one. He felt like a man holding a fierce bloodhound in leash. There were curs to do the smaller work, but some day he would slip this creature upon its prey. A few members of the lodge, Ted Baldwin among them, resented the rapid rise of the stranger and hated him for it, but they kept clear of him, for he was as ready to fight as to laugh. But if he gained favor with his fellows, there was another quarter, one which had become even more vital to him, in which he lost it. Eddie Shafter's father would have nothing more to do with him, nor would he allow him to enter the house. Eddie herself was too deeply in love to give him up altogether, and yet her own good sense warned her of what would come from a marriage with a man who was regarded as a criminal. One morning after a sleepless night, she determined to see him, possibly for the last time, and make one strong endeavor to draw him from those evil influences which were sucking him down. She went to his house, as he'd often begged her to do, and made her way into the room which he used as his sitting room. He was seated at a table, with his back turned and a letter in front of him. A sudden spirit of girlish mischief came over her. She was still only nineteen. He had not heard her when she pushed open the door. Now she tiptoed forward and laid her hand lightly upon his bended shoulders. If she had expected to startle him, she certainly succeeded. But only in turn to be startled herself. With a tiger spring he turned on her, and his right hand was feeling for her throat— at the same instant, with the other hand, he crumpled up the paper that lay before him. For an instant, he stood glaring. Then astonishment and joy took the place of the ferocity which had convulsed his features, a ferocity which had sent her shrinking back in horror as from something which had never before intruded into her gentle life. "'It's you,' said he, mopping his brow. "'And to think that you should come to me heart of my heart, and I should find nothing better to do than to want to strangle you. Come then, darling. And he held out his arms. Let me make it up to you. But she had not recovered from that sudden glimpse of guilty fear which she had read in the man's face. All her woman's instinct told her that it was not the mere fright of a man who was startled. Guilt, that's what it was. Guilt and fear. "'What's come over you, Jack?' she cried. "'Why were you so scared of me? 
Oh, Jack, if your conscience was at ease, you would not have looked at me like that. Sure, I was thinking of other things, and when you came tripping so lightly on those fairy feet of yours... No, no, it was more than that, Jack. Then a sudden suspicion seized her. Let me see that letter you were writing. Ah, uh, Eddie, I couldn't do that. Her suspicions became certainties. It's to another woman, she cried. I know it. Why else should you hold it from me? Was it to your wife that you were writing? How am I to know that you are not a married man, you, a stranger, that nobody knows? I am not married, Eddie. See, now I swear it. You're the only woman on earth to me. By the cross of Christ, I swear it. He was so white with passionate earnestness that she could not but believe him. Well then, she cried, why will you not show me the letter? I'll tell you, said he. I'm under oath not to show it, and just as I wouldn't break my word to you, so I would keep it to those who hold my promise. It's the business of the lodge, and even to you it's secret. And if I was scared when a hand fell on me, can't you understand it, when it might have been the hand of a detective? She felt that he was telling the truth. He gathered her into his arms and kissed away her fears and doubts. Sit here by me, then. It's a queer throne for such a queen, but it's the best your poor lover can find. He'll do better for you some of these days, I'm thinking. Now your mind is easy once again, is it not? How can it ever be at ease, Jack, when I know that you are a criminal among criminals? When I never know the day that I may hear you are in court for murder? McMurder, the scour. That's what one of our boarders called you yesterday. It went through my heart like a knife. Sure, hard words break no bones. But they were true. Well, dear, it's not so bad as you think. We are but poor men that are trying in our own way to get our rights. Eddie threw up her arms round her lover's neck. Give it up, Jack. For my sake, for God's sake, give it up. It was to ask you that I came here today. Oh, Jack, see, I beg it of you on my bended knees. Kneeling here before you, I implore you to give it up. He raised her and soothed her with her head against his breast. Sure, my darling, you don't know what it is you are asking. How could I give it up when it would be to break my oath and to desert my comrades? If you could see how things stand with me, you could never ask it of me. Besides, if I wanted to, how could I do it? You don't suppose that the Lodge would let a man go free with all its secrets? I thought of that, Jack. I've planned it all. Father has saved some money. He is wary of this place where the fear of these people darkens our lives. He is ready to go. We would fly together to Philadelphia or New York, where we would be safe from them. McMurdo laughed. The Lodge has a long arm. Do you think it could not stretch from here to Philadelphia or New York? Well, then, to the West or to England or to Germany, where Father came from. Anywhere to get away from this valley of fear. McMurdo thought of old brother Morse. Sure, it is the second time I have heard the valley so named, said he. The shadow does indeed seem to lie heavy on some of you. It darkens every moment of our lives. 
Do you suppose that Ted Baldwin has ever forgiven us? If it were not that he fears you, what do you suppose our chances would be? If you saw the look in those dark, hungry eyes of his when they fall on me. By God, I'd teach him better manners if I caught him at it. But see here, little girl, I can't leave here. I can't. Take that from me once and for all. But if you will leave me to find my own way, I will try to prepare a way of getting honorably out of it. There is no honor in such a matter. Well, well, it's just how you look at it. But if you'll give me six months, I'll work it so that I can leave without being ashamed to look others in the face. The girl laughed with joy. Six months, she cried. Is it a promise? Well, it may be seven or eight, but within a year at the furthest, we will leave the valley behind us. It was the most that Eddie could obtain, and yet it was something. There was this distant light to illuminate the gloom of the immediate future. She returned to her father's house more light-hearted than she had ever been since Jack McMurdo had come into her life. It might be thought that as a member, all the doings of the society would be told to him, but he was soon to discover that the organization was wider and more complex than the simple lodge. Even Boss McGinty was ignorant as to many things, for there was an official named the county delegate living at Hobson's Patch, farther down the line, who had power over several different lodges, which he wielded in a sudden and arbitrary way. Only once did McMurdo see him, a sly little grey-haired rat of a man with a slinking gait and a sidelong glance which was charged with malice. Evans Pot was his name, and even the great boss of Vermissa felt towards him something of the repulsion and fear which the huge Danton may have felt for the puny but dangerous Robespierre. One day Scanlon, who was McMurdo's fellow boarder, received a note from McGinty enclosing one from Evans Pot, who informed him that he was sending over two good men, Lawler and Andrews, who had instructions to act in the neighborhood, though it was best for the cause that no particulars as to their objects should be given. Would the bodymaster see to it that suitable arrangements be made for their lodgings and comfort until the time for action should arrive? McGinty added that it was impossible for anyone to remain secret at the Union House, and that therefore he would be obliged if McMurdo and Scanlon would put the strangers up for a few days in their boarding house. The same evening, the two men arrived, each carrying his grip sack. Lawler was an elderly man, shrewd, silent, and self-contained, clad in an old black frock coat, which, with his soft felt hat and ragged, grisly beard, gave him a general resemblance to an itinerant preacher. His companion, Andrews, was little more than a boy, frank-faced and cheerful with the breezy manner of one who is out for a holiday and means to enjoy every minute of it. Both men were total abstainers and behaved in all ways as exemplary members of the society, with the one simple exception that they were assassins who had often proved themselves to be most capable instruments for this association of murder. Lawler had already carried out fourteen commissions of the kind, and Andrews, three. They were, as McMurdo found, quite ready to converse about their deeds in the past, which they recounted with the half-bashful pride of men who had done good and unselfish service for the community. 
They were reticent, however, as to the immediate job at hand. "'They chose us because neither I nor the boy here drink,' Lawler explained. "'They can count on us saying no more than we should. "'You must not take it amiss, "'but it is the orders of the county delegate that we obey.' "'Sure, we are all in it together,' said Scanlon, "'McMurdo's mate, as the four sat together at supper. "'That's true enough, and we'll talk till the cows come home "'of the killing of Charlie Williams, or of Simon Bird, "'or any other job in the past.' "'but till the work is done we say nothing. "'There are half a dozen about here "'that I have a word to say to,' said McMurdo with an oath. "'I suppose it isn't Jack Knox of Iron Hill that you are after. "'I'd go some way to see him get his deserts.' "'No, it's not him yet. "'Or Herman Strauss?' "'No, nor him either. "'Well, if you won't tell us, we can't make you, "'but I'd be glad to know.' Waller smiled and shook his head. He was not to be drawn. In spite of the reticence of their guests, Scanlon and McMurdo were quite determined to be present at what they called the fun. When therefore at an early hour one morning McMurdo heard them creeping down the stairs, he awakened Scanlon and the two hurried on their clothes. When they were dressed, they found that the others had stolen out, leaving the door open behind them. It was not yet dawn, and by the light of the lamps they could see the two men some distance down the street. They followed them, warily, treading noiselessly in the deep snow. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.